Welcome to Real Talk, Real Women Breaking the Silence Around Abuse. I am Gemma Sereniti Gorokov, your host, and today, coming from Pennsylvania, we have Dr. Anne Katona Lin. Just before we get started more, if you are not subscribed to this channel yet, go immediately, download the episode, subscribe, and head over to gemmasgem.substack.com to make sure you receive an email every single time we publish an episode. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Anne. Dr. Anne Catonalin is a passionate educational coach, a speaker, an author, a leader across the United States. She has dedicated her career to helping schools and communities develop safe, supportive, and positive environments for all. Learning from her own personal experiences from childhood adversity and trauma, she is an outspoken advocate for holistic wellness and has developed a unique set of skills in systems change, special education, school mental health, trauma-informed and healing-centered practices that reflect her experiences with over 26 years in the field. Her unique endeavors include a think tank with men serving life in prison and reform thought partners and a mentor to youth at a juvenile detention facility. Anne travels the country and settles back in Pennsylvania, where she lives now with her husband. She spends her time with family and at their camper near the Lehigh River. Is it right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Lehigh River where she and her husband enjoy whitewater stand-up paddling SUV. That is so cool. Dr. Anne, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's get started with your story. What kind of abuse did you overcome that shaped who you are today? Yeah, so... uh one of the first things that I remember when I was, and I remember this so clearly, I was in fourth grade, so about 10 years old, uh, which we have twin granddaughters who are 10 years old. So that kind of freaks me out when I even think about that. Uh, I had, um, I was a fourth grade, I was athletic, I was a basketball player, I was a cheerleader, I I was, I ran, I played football, I, I was very much a tomboy. And I um, was also kind of tall for my age. Um, by the time I was in sixth grade, I was five, six. So um, I, I was I grew pretty quickly. So when I was in fourth grade, there were eighth grade boys in the school. I went to a, a K to eight Catholic school. And the there were about four or five um, eighth grade boys in the school who would call me, they gave me a nickname. They would call me Skin. And at the time, I really didn't know what that meant. I just know I didn't like it because of how they looked at me. Um, I felt like they were looking right through me. And that was really one of my first instances of that sexual harassment and feeling like I was an object and not um, really for who I was. Um, that was. That was really that first instance. Uh, and there was actually even another kid who was younger than me who would call me legs. Um, you know, again, I think they meant it. They were thinking, um, thinking it was kind of a compliment, but it was really demeaning. And I, like I said, I just knew 
that it was a very negative term. So uh, as an adult, obviously, now I understand what skin means, um, but it just, it made me feel really uncomfortable. And I, I avoided anywhere where they were. Uh, I would, you know, I had to, I had to kind of monitor myself and really try to squash myself for who I was. So that was that, that first incident. Um, when I was older, I was in college and I went to school for physical therapy and, um, athletic training. And I was working at a school out in, um, the San Francisco area and I was going to school and I was an athletic trainer. So I was working with a lot of different athletes and football, basketball, variety of different sports. Uh, one incident, uh, specifically, you know, this was the late eighties. And so, uh, 1987, uh, it was not a great field at the time for women, uh, because it was really, uh, very much a good old boys kind of career. And a lot of women that were, even though there were a lot of rem- women doing the sport, um, uh, doing athletic training, um, it was still very male dominated, you know, in terms of the jobs, the good jobs, uh, the good pay, the good placements, you know, like with the teams, uh, you, you know, we all, all the women got kind of the lower profile teams and also the, the lower paying jobs, longer hours, weekends. Uh, it was really difficult. I loved it at the time. It just was very difficult. And, um, you know, when I worked in high school, again, I loved it, but the pay was not very good. So uh, one situation, I got to know football players and, you know, my I was in my early 20s and I was, you know, I've uh, been fairly good looking my my whole life and have been fairly outgoing and, and personable and social and always friendly. And that was really how I grew up. So a small town girl going to school in San Francisco uh, I was very naive at the time, and my childhood trauma kind of, uh, I, I felt like set me up, uh, you know, not saying it's my fault. It just, it it made me more of a person at risk uh, to be harassed. And so just generally during football, you know, football practices or um, games, you know, there were some subtle things. Uh, there were definitely a few athletes that were more so. Uh, would make comments to me, and um, those were really challenging. And then, uh, but I, you know, at the time, again, it was way more socially acceptable, so I didn't really think of it as an issue. Then uh, one night, I went to a party with several of my friends, and I had just gotten there, and really, you know, I didn't have anything to drink. I I just kind of just arrived, and. As I was walking in the door, one of the football players was there and he had been saying different things to me previously, kind of flirting with me. And I, you know, I didn't really give him a whole lot of attention. You know, I just sort of smiled and laughed. And, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't suspect anything. Anyway, at the time when I came into the room, I came into the the apartment. He pulled me into a room and started kissing me and and then raped me. And it just happened so fast that it it just, it was really kind of what just happened. And I really, I detached from my body. You know, I think it was 
this protective factor for myself. I was trying to protect myself, yet I didn't, you know, it just happened so fast that it, it I didn't even have my, have time to wrap my head around what was happening uh, until afterwards. And I just felt so dirty. And so I felt like I did something because it was, you know, at this time it was the late 80s and it was um, somebody that I knew. Uh, and because I knew him, I thought there must have been something that I did. And that kind of comes from my childhood again. I always felt like there was something about me that made, uh, you know, guys do that. And, and you know, but obviously to be raped is n- completely inappropriate. Just at the time, I didn't, I didn't have the skills. My self-esteem was very bad from my, from different childhood traumas. Uh, and so I didn't know how to be an advocate for myself. I didn't know how to defend myself. And even when I did, uh, I still blame myself. The shame and the um, just blaming of myself is such a, a big issue, um, you know, with sexual harassment and abuse that uh, I think that's what really did more damage than anything. You understand that so well because I have also experienced that kind of things as an adult from a person I knew. So I, I, I can relate 100% with what you share and what you say. And indeed, it requires a certain low self-esteem, low self-confidence to even have that possible to happen. Yeah. And yeah. It may happen, I mean, five, ten minutes is already done. It's done. Yeah. Done. It's like, but it just broke down your entire life once again yeah yeah and oh please and when somebody has that physical you know strength over you it's hard to fight that so um you know even when you try it it, it's it's difficult so definitely is i understand that so we understand that i say we because we are always linked to you we understand that there was this first experience when you were 10 years old and you started to be harassed and seen as a sexual object instead of a woman, a person, an athlete, and an amazing person. None of that, but like skin, legs. I mean, it is, it is, skin is beautiful, legs are beautiful, but this is a part of us. It's not all that we are. And right. that is so implying that we are only that. Mm-hmm. And there is an entire weird connection that goes in the brain at that time. It's yeah. Conscious mind especially. Yeah. That can then play out a little bit later when you become a young adult. Mm-hmm. And just like, well, if I am just skin and legs, well, what can go wrong? I mean, I'm already playing out at the highest level of ascetism. Yeah. Okay, and then surprised. Yeah, another one looks at you with the same uh, predator eyes. Yeah. What is this shift in consciousness when you took back your own power and you decided, you know what? What is wrong with me is the way I think and I come and I create my story. I have to take back my own power because I'm able to do it differently. I am so much more than that. Yeah. I think, you know, the sexual trauma that I've experienced has been the most difficult to overcome 
because of the stigma, the, you know, society blaming the victim and, you know, all of these things um, about, uh, let's see, I think it's about 16 years ago. Uh, no, actually a little bit longer, 23 years ago, now that I say that, uh, I started really looking at my childhood trauma uh, that that was a car accident. And, you know, there were other traumas that happened that really created, I had full-blown PTSD as a child. Um, it was in my early 30s that I really started looking at those and started healing from them. And I, I remember after the rape, I was, I, you know, went to counseling. I was like, oh yeah, I had PTSD as a kid, but I got over it. But the, the, and I really only went to two sessions for the rape. And so in the early thirties, really starting to look at my trauma in general. And the more I studied trauma and the more I, uh, really, I shifted careers actually. And I got into special education because of not just the, the harassment, but all these, you know, the variety of things, the long hours, the bad pay, I decided to really, you know, that physical therapy I enjoyed, but I, I really loved the athletic training aspect. And so I shifted my career to special education and really started uh, learning more about trauma and its impact, as well as I was also diagnosed with a few autoimmune diseases with lupus and Sjogren's in my early 30s. Um, then I'd first heard about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I really, uh, you know, I had a spiritual awakening also at that point. I had, a, I went to a retreat and just, you know, I felt like I connected with God and he's like, you are, you've tried to do this on your own your entire life. Now it's time to do it with my help and expert help. Um, and so I started, you know, I decided that I wasn't even going to, I didn't even date for seven years. Uh, I, you know, really started working on myself and and share my story. So that was kind of the beginning of it. But this speaking out about the rape has been a challenge really up until even last year. So, you know, I've shared my story. I share my story of my childhood trauma in presentations and trainings that I do. And it has influenced a lot of the work that I do. And with that, I have shared about the rape, but I really have, have done it in passing, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, I was raped and, you know, just sort of went on. But last year I um, decided I was finally going to write a book and cause I'd had people telling me that I should. And so I finally decided that I was going to do that. So I started the process. So this past year I've been writing my memoir uh, which really has led me to the to why I do what I do, uh, and within that, I looked at the trauma of being raped, and uh, I still had so much of that shame that it you know even with the last couple of years with the whole Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein and you know um, Jeffrey Epstein all of those things and that were you know people are coming out and saying things. You know, I, I watch and I hear these women are still struggling. People say, why didn't you say something? And and I completely understand why people don't. And yet there's still so much judgment for that. So as this past year, I've dug into this, um, you know, the sexual abuse and the, the, the rape 
more significantly. And uh, I just recently was part of a collaborative book that was, um, and it was Depression Lied to Me. And I took that chapter about the rape and specifically went deeper in it for that book. And that was the first time that I really fully expressed everything that happened with that situation and how it impacted me. Uh, and so that was really the, the biggest breakthrough. So it's really just within the last year. I'm 56 years old and it's it's still there's so much shame with it. So, uh, you know, now I feel so much more comfortable because I shared my story. I've given away I've given um, I've stopped giving away my power around this story specifically uh, and really focused on that there are so many women out there that have been through this. Uh, and I, I want to be able to share my story because we all need to stick together and support each other to be able to feel safe to share our stories and that we don't want to listen to those vo voices that are telling us otherwise. Wholeheartedly agree, Dr. Anne. Thank you so much to really speaking to what it actually represents experience as people as women as all that is going on in our minds the expectation expectation of being a woman oh god that is a sign of legacy <laughs> okay so thank you for speaking into that i guess the third question we're going to address is the systemic abuse of women in male-dominated careers because you did experience that firsthand all right in the 1980s 1990s that period of time before 2000 but it's still today and it's still relevant it still happens maybe less and i agree less but still Mm -hmm. How did you come to help those who are experiencing it? How do you address that? Yeah, and and I think you know, again, I'm still I'm still kind of navigating some of that. Obviously, just the fact that I've really, uh, you know, dug into the trauma more and understanding the impact of trauma. And what that looks like in general has made it easier. And again, sharing my story, I, I've had a lot of, you know, women, I even had a guy say to me that he was sexually abused. So, um, so what I do with schools, again, it's not specifically geared towards women in um, athletic training like I was previously, but it, it I think the sharing the story and normalizing having these conversations, regardless of what field you're in, what you do, where you work, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. I think it's just sharing that space of I'm going to make it safe for other women to be able to share their story. And we're going to come together, at, you know, whatever venue that is, it doesn't matter. We just need to come together, support each other. Uh, and create those safe spaces. So the trauma aspects of, again, my work have absolutely led to uh, even further expanding on me sharing 
my story and hopefully um, being able to impact any woman, probably more specifically women, though, again, I know men can be, um, you know, sexually harassed and, and also raped. It just is much less. And the systemic piece, that's kind of the thing, is that it is, you know, cat calls and, you know, a lot of different things that historically we've thought of as, uh, you know, cute or flattering. I remember there was an older guy at a physical therapy clinic that I worked at and he would kind of, it was almost like this little girl pat you on the head, like, oh, you're so cute, you know, and like, and I can't even remember exactly what the names, but I had to ask him to stop calling me, you know, like, um, sweetheart or something like that. I can't, it's been a while, but, um, you know, that's the other piece of it is, yes, sharing my story and being an advocate for myself as well as other girls. So in my family alone, I am absolutely adamant that we need to, we need to start uh, young and we need to make sure we're giving kids, uh, especially girls, the skills to be able to take care of themselves. So one example, and this is kind of something that I've learned with special education, you know, it's, it's advocating for people who don't have a voice for themselves. So, uh, you know, historically, we often try to get adults, especially, you know, kids and adults, well, kid in schools, we try to get kids to be compliant. And so we just want them to behave. We want them to be compliant with what we tell them to do. Just do it because I, I said so. The problem is, is that when we do that, we actually are taking away a child's voice to um, be able to fight for themselves. You know, we're not teaching kids to be advocates for themselves. And so, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know I was allowed to. I went to 13 years of Catholic school. I was very compliant. I was a, I was a much more internalizing kid. And so I didn't know that I could advocate for myself. So I, the work that I do, I really try to help schools with teaching those skills. Um, now, they, there are a lot of stigma even around that because people say, well, we shouldn't be teaching those things in, in school, such as social-emotional learning. Those are some of those skills. The problem is, is that where are we going to do it? If a lot of times families don't have those skills. And if there's trauma in the family, there is often these dysfunctional, you know, skills that we have or lack of get passed down. And so it's really important for us to teach these skills. And these are just skills for kids to be able to have discussion and debate. You know, looking at society right now, we, we you know, people on social media say things to, to each other that you would never say in person. Yet, how can, how can we teach kids about not bullying and not being mean when so many adults are doing it, you know, in, and these are leaders. And so we've got to really, you know, from all of this, it's, you know, obviously I'm passionate about this because I know how it damaged me and how it wounded me as well as I didn't have the skills to be able to truly fight for myself. So, you know, with that, we can really 
teach young kids that it's okay to say no. You know, like even uh, a lot of times too, we just, we, we don't allow kids when, when we say, you know, you need to do this and they say, no, we often punish them because of that. And so, you know, these are things that we don't often don't think about even something like tickling, you know, when a, even a father is tickling their daughter and the daughter saying, stop, stop, please. No. And even though they're laughing, you know, the fact that the dad, if a dad will continue tickling the daughter and not honoring her no, it's inadvertent. Again, we know that it's not, they're not trying to hurt their daughter. It's just that when we teach girls, uh, especially girls that, you know, those things are just all in play and they're all fun. It's, you know, that's how guys are. Um, that's not, it's, we're, we're setting ourselves up for a culture of uh, just shame and sexual harassment that we we don't even realize that it's happening. So, you know, those are kind of, I think, starting at a young age, as well as speaking my truth and sharing my story and helping others to become advocates for themselves, uh, you know, regardless if they're boys or girls, that that we can teach kids to have civil disagreements and explicitly teach those things because those are part of being a good citizen. Being a good human being is being able to have relationships and and disagree respectfully. And that includes allowing kids to say no. You know, obviously there are going to be situations uh, where they can't, but we need to teach them the difference between you know, when it's okay to say that and when it's not and teaching kids about how they should be able to take care of themselves. You know, how can they say no to somebody coming up to them? I, you know, I worked with adults with disabilities. I was a group home supervisor and we had uh, several adults who grew up in an institution and they were compliant. They were very compliant. We had a, a woman who she would take her money to go get coffee down the street because she was fully able to do that. And she, there were so many times when people took her money because they would come up to her and say, give me your money. And because she learned compliance, she didn't. She never learned how to take care of herself and advocate. She would give it away. So then she actually became a hoarder because she was. that was the only way she knew how was become a hoarder was to protect herself um, by doing that. So we, if we don't teach kids how to be an advocate for themselves and that they can say no to, to situations that are uncomfortable, then, you know, we're going to have all these bad behaviors that, uh, come out because they're lacking the skills that they need. So. Wow. That is super insightful. What you share here, Dr. Ann. Thank you so much. It is indeed a, and it, it's a real dance between what you dare to speak up for yourself, what you allow others to speak back to you, how do you co-create or how do you just give it all away because you are asked to. So it's just like, yeah, no boundaries. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it all becomes, it all comes back to boundaries. Yes. Learning 
personal boundaries, knowing what is allowed and what is not, daring to say that there is a boundary. We stop there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the first piece is having awareness of ourselves and what we're okay. What are our strengths and what are our weaknesses and what are we okay with? I never learned those things. And so from there, that's when, you know, and we can manage ourselves. And then the next piece would be around relationships. But the first piece is that we have to understand our own identity, our own strengths and weaknesses. And then it's easier to to teach them how to set up personal boundaries for healthy relationships. Absolutely. That is so, so insightful. So the systemic abuse of women in male-dominated careers is really a question of culture, of what we allow and what we expect. That is a reality. This is why it's not just teaching men how to behave toward women, it's teaching women how to behave toward themselves. And teaching men how to not get raped as well because they are not excluded from the entire domestic violence scene. Yep, absolutely. It, it is it's, absolutely it's real. We have to understand ourselves first and what we're okay, not okay with. And that's a lot of times, again, we just, we're not, I just don't even remember having those conversations. Like what is, what is uncomfortable touching? You know, we, we, I, we have four granddaughters, so I am keenly aware of making sure I communicate and I've gotten them books and, well, you know, let's have these conversations. We have to make it part of our culture and it has to start, you know, it, it, it has to start appropriately as young as possible, letting kids know that just those things about I'm, I'm uncomfortable with somebody touching me, whatever way that is, um, mm-hmm. We need to we need to make it okay, and it is a culture shift. So there, there's a way to go, but I feel like we definitely have made a lot of progress. We have way more tools than we ever had when I was a kid. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know so much more. I, part of the reason I got into the, what I do is because I wanted to learn the skills that I didn't have, you know. And and we didn't learn that, and so we can learn it as adults. We don't have to be kids. You know, that does, we can be 90 years old and still be learning these skills. Doesn't matter what age. So that's totally true. So, the way you help others now is that you dedicate your career to helping schools and communities develop safe, supportive, and positive environments for all. So, how does that look like? People hire you, I mean, people like, like schools hire you to help them do better? Yes. So I have the last really 20, 20 plus years, I've been doing training and technical assistance and coaching and really, and I, my, I got my doctorate in educational psychology, which is the science of learning and teaching. And I, I taught in higher ed and I've taught special education and autistic support and emotional support. So some of those kind of most challenging areas. And um, I'm a behavior analyst. So with all of that, the last 20 years, I've really spent focusing on managing behavior. So yes, um, in special education, but the the last, you know, it's really grown and that we focus on prevention and not just intervening when kids are having problem behaviors. So doing classroom management pieces 
and, you know, again, not just discipline kind of reaction, but focusing on prevention as well as how are we making sure we're teaching kids in a way that is better, that that's going to prevent behaviors in the first place. So, you know, it, it's we want to integrate these things all together. Um, and so in the classroom, as well as I have uh, done work with schools and creating um, kind of school-wide positive climates. And I worked at the state level. So I work not only with school buildings, but I also work with school districts. Uh, I worked at the state level for, I don't know, I guess 12 years total. And really looking at how systems all interact together. And that sometimes it's even us having permission to talk to each other and think outside of the box because a lot of times there are all these different mandates and grants and funding sources and it's complicated and it's like so I come in and and really help them to look at how can they work smarter as a school building as a teacher as a district and so that they can be more effective with, with what they do at the same time create kind of um, trauma-informed but really kind of focusing on creating a more positive environment where everyone can thrive, not just the kids, but the staff, the leadership, uh, and helping to really create that culture uh, and partnering with other uh, agencies and systems. I've done um, some work with like Transitions of Pennsylvania. They do a lot of work around um, domestic violence and sexual abuse. And so I've done work with them and the United Way and, um, you know, Bucknell University, Bloomsburg University, universities, uh, just nonprofit organizations, a variety of different organizations to come together to look at how can we all work better and smarter to prevent a lot of these things in the future. Um, some of the work that I've done came out of the Sandy Hook and the Columbine shooting. Uh, and so really focusing on how can we all work together, whether it's school police officers, uh, you know, school counselors, teachers, paraprofessionals, families, community partners, whoever it is. It's how can we all work together and create a, an environment that is um, going to be supportive and, and prevent things in the long run. It's easier to kind of go upstream and figure out what the problem is and fix that problem to prevent things once things are kind of falling off the rails or once you know we think of a boat going down the river once people are swimming in the river it's a lot harder to rescue them whereas if we go upstream and figure out what what is kind of causing the issue and address that it's it's a lot easier it's more effective it actually saves us money you know that return on investment helping people understand that if we do those things you know, I hear people talking about, well, you know, we don't want to do that. There are a lot of political issues around these things. It's just that if we wait until things are so bad or if we have kids in, you know, like prisons that we have so many people going into prisons, what can we do to prevent these things from, um, you know, these this adversity as uh, when they're children having that longer term impact? And we we know so much more that what we can do so. A lot of resources that we can do but that's that's kind of what i do my one of my nicknames is spider lady because i connect the dots and i kind of can create webs and uh and i like to bring people together to really help them to figure out what's going to work for their system 
you know, it's not just me coming in as that expert. I want them to, to figure that out. And I help facilitate that process. That sounds amazing. It really does. So your ideal clients are schools, organizations, where there are lots of people to manage the, the culture of the group so that there is less hurt, less harassment, less uh, demeaning behavior, so that there is more trust, more easygoing uh, conversation, more collaboration and co-elevation. Yeah. Try to put it in a absolutely. Yeah, and and again, it's it's across every level, you know, in a school system, in a community, whatever that is. It's in how we engage everyone. Everyone's voices are important. You know, we need to get the kids more involved. We need their voices. So it's every aspect of a community. We all come together. That, exactly, we're stronger together. Always. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Anne, it is such an honor and pleasure to have you here. Thank you for giving us your insights, your time, your value, your wisdom that you have acquired through hardship, fire, and a lot of years of experience. And um, maybe last question, and we'll close with that. What is one absolutely amazing testimonial that you can bring from one of the schools or the organizations and you did help. Yeah. Have to choose. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But I have to tell you one thing that popped into my head, one of the schools that we worked with uh, through this big, huge grant, um, youth engagement was a huge piece of it. And one of the, the schools that one of the districts that we worked with created an entire countywide youth um, alliance, a mental health alliance. They had and the kids were the ones who led it. And it, so they won a national award from the National Center for School Mental Health uh, the, the year that they started. So it was just such an, you know, neat things that came out of that. And it, part of it was us giving them that permission and helping to connect the dots to get the resources and, and just knowing who to talk to and, and how to ask them all the right questions. It, and really get youth their voice authentic, not just again a bunch of adults telling them what to do. It's really them leading it, which takes a lot of stress off of the adults if we really think about it. So that's kind of one of those things. And I, I have a heart for youth, and so uh, really being able to to help them create a system that they they're you know that they're the directors of it, that we just kind of are there to support them. That's probably one of the, the things that I love the most about my work. So, Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. So we have all your details in the description. And to make it super simple, Consulting.com. It's K-A-T-O-N-A-L-I-N-N Consulting.com. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So that we have the central part. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you it's so much for having for I appreciate it. Me. I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too.